0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: It's almost like taking the picture of the food has replaced what we would maybe otherwise do, which is say grace, or Mm. look at one another and say bon appetit, or or, you know. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers, or whatever it is that you say. (laughs) This week on our show, we talk with Yara
0: Kluver about her food photography course at IU, and we explore a southern take on a Ghanaian street food with Samantha Cote. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. Let's go to Renee Reed for news. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate.
2: The Trump administration's latest budget proposes cutting SNAP funding by about $15 million. The proposal also asks Congress for stricter free and reduced lunch rules in public schools. If you feel like you've heard this story before, well, you have. The Trump administration released its 2021 budget this week, and many social programs are on the chopping block, including the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. The budget proposes a 29% cut in SNAP funding and renews proposed requirements for SNAP recipients to work at least 20 hours a week. Cuts to SNAP funding and work requirements are nothing new. The administration first proposed a work requirement for SNAP recipients in the 2018 Farm Bill. The requirement was eventually rejected by Congress. The 2021 budget also includes a renewed proposal for a USDA harvest box, replacing cash benefits with commodity food boxes. That proposal was created by Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue and has been rejected twice by Congress. Around 700,000 people are already set to lose access to SNAP in April when the first of three rules kicks in. These rules will ultimately cut three million people from the program. The Trump administration also asked Congress for stricter access to free meals for low-income children at public schools. Farmers and lawmakers in New York are calling for a trade investigation amid a flood of cheap onions from Canada. In December, in the span of about two weeks, onion prices tumbled to less than half what they had been earlier in the year. The crisis spurred the National Onion Association and New York Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Chuck Schumer to call for an investigation into unfair trade subsidies for Canadian growers. The statement quotes data from the USDA showing that growers from New York's so-called onion black dirt region in Orange County are offered only $7 per 50-pound bag, when they had been getting closer to $14 per bag. Farmers consider $12 to be the minimum needed to break even on cost. An article for Civil Eats said that several of their sources suggested cheaper Canadian onions have flooded the market. The hardest-hit sector is mid-sized farms that can't weather losses like giant ag companies. That's our news for this week. Thanks to Taylor Killo and Chad Bouchard for those stories. For Earth Eat's news, I'm Renee Reed. Thank you, Renee. Sure thing, Kate.
0: In the age of Instagram, taking pictures of meals has become rather commonplace. In her food photography course, Professor Yara Kluver complicates the role of both food and photography throughout history and in our current everyday lives. I stopped in during one of the studio sessions with her class in the fall. They met in the cafe area of the Collins Living Learning Center on the IU campus.
1: Maybe I would add, I brought also these, because this is something that you could put like in the background. Um, and if I was working with something like this, I might put it in the background with the intention.
0: Professor Kluver asked the students to bring food items for today's shoot. But she also supplied a spread of foods, herbs, glassware, cloth napkins, and other props of various colors, shapes, and textures.
1: In a minute, but you know, I could have one in the foreground. So you know how we are learning about composition, what's in your foreground, what's in your middle ground? What's
0: the students select items from the table Pick out their lighting equipment and get to work setting up their scenes. I approached a group of students midway through their photo shoot and spoke with Erin Bowie about what her group was working with.
3: We have an empty piece tea can and then some dried apricots and some pur- not purple, blue warheads with a blue sheet around it. What was the first thing? A piece tea can. Piece tea, piece tea. Okay. A, a brand. Okay. And what have you guys done with it? So our idea was to make a diagonal to draw your eye through the piece. So we start at the top with the very top of the can. And then we arranged the, the fruit and the candy in a line that leads down to the bottom of the sheet that we were using. So we we're focusing mainly on orange and blue. We have a teal cloth and a blue plate and some blue candy, and then we have the orange apricots and the, the tea can.
0: And you also incorporated the wrappers, I noticed.
3: Yes. Uh, my original idea, because the, the can was empty when we got it, was to focus on the aftermath of the food. The, the waste that comes with it. So I thought it'd be cool to like have a bunch of empty wrappers with the rest of the, f- the food. And if you look closely, one of the apricots is eaten off of, like it's kind of half eaten. Also, you've got the war and the peace. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we were using a diffuser to mellow out the light from the window. And then we also used a metallic light blocker or a reflector that really helped us make the oranges pop because there's a definite lack of orange in this composition. It's there, it's just subtle. Mm -hmm.
0: I asked Erin why she enrolled in the course and what she was getting out of it.
3: I really like photography. It's not something that I really wanted to pursue as a career but it's something that I'm very fond of. I'm a social work major. Were you already taking pictures of food like maybe for Instagram or whatever? Uh, No, I tend to focus on other people as my main subject, I also like drawing, and I pretty much exclusively draw portraits as well. So I, I I like to focus on people, and for a lot of the projects I've had, I do focus on people interacting with food, food as opposed to just food. I think I've learned that food photography can, is a lot more diverse, and it has a much richer history than what people typically think of it as, because you know. You, You think of food photography as just some girl on Instagram or some person on Instagram taking a photo, but in reality, it has shaped the way we make food and the way we think about food and our culture as a whole.
0: Yara Kluver is the associate director at the Collins Living Learning Center at Indiana University. She has a background in fine art photography and began developing this food photography course at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Polenzo, Italy. I invited Yara to the studio to talk more about what she had in mind for this food photography course.
1: It wasn't intended as a class for art majors necessarily. Mm-hmm. And the class is called Food Photography Concepts and Practice. So it is both a hands-on taking photos or shooting photos and setting up studio situations I don't expect them to have any training really in photography you don't have to like a phone is fine as a camera (laughs) it's a variety of different majors but the thing I mean that everybody has in common is that they take pictures of their food so we're really looking at not just photography but really thinking about food what is food in our society how historically we think about how even civilization evolved as a result of agriculture and farming. And so the kind of impact that food has on our societies, on culture, on cultural expression, in religion, and advertisement, there's a theoretical component to the class. And then we look at, well, what is food studies? We look at that initially. And then also visual literacy, definitely. Mm-hmm. also, you know, how do images communicate? And How are we impacted by them and sort of technically what's going on with an image? I mean, that's one component of it, right, is the technical aspects of the photo are working on you in some way, but also the context in which photographs exist today. We're taking so many pictures of our food and it's doing a number of things. (laughs) One of the things is that it's working on the level of being like a grassroots advertising kind Mm -hmm. of campaign, you know, when everybody is like photographing their food and kind of showing off here's what I ate, and I ate it at this place. You mm-hmm. know, it creates this wonderful for the restaurants and businesses, right? It's this mm-hmm. form of grassroots advertising that has a lot of validity to it because it's very authentic, right? It's not right. somebody trying to sell you something because they want to make money off of it, but it's somebody selling you their experience. And so it, it carries a lot of weight. And, and so what that also, also starts to do, is starts to create communities. You know, while I've often been, anti-social media and what is it doing to one-on-one interaction, face-to-face interaction. On the other hand, it's like, well, it is generating communities as well through hashtag. Yara is noticing shifts in how we experience our meals. The way in which we relate to eating, and this I think also happens at home, maybe more in restaurants, but is that it's almost like taking the picture of the food has replaced what we would maybe otherwise do, which is... Say grace or mm. look at one another and say bon appetit or, you know, cheers, or, cheers or whatever it is that you say. You might still do that, but it's sort of that need to document has replaced some of the other rituals that we might have done before. One of the readings for the class is by
0: Charles Barstow from the magazine The New Gastronome, published through the University of Gastronomic Sciences, where Yara has taught. The piece is called Eating
1: the image, reflections on food, photos, and fantasy. He's really examining, well, why is it that we take photos of our food, and what's happening to, to our experience, right, or, of when we eat a meal, with somebody, let's say at a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. So he locates things on a, on two axes, on a horizontal and a vertical axis, and he says that the actual experience of eating food is on a vertical axis. So when you eat something he talks about as it, like a haptic you know a haptic pleasure it's like happening in the moment it's the sense of taste mm-hmm. right and that is a different sense from our vision but that that is happening in the moment right and it's really we're internalizing the thing and so it's about the body and the singer. really subject object and subject are very connected in that process yeah. and it's happening in, in that instance so on the horizontal axis which represents time it's happening at sort of like up point in time whereas our visual sense is very much more about a longer period of time that has to do with the future and the past mm-hmm. and so that these are two really opposite things and so he takes a little bit more of a negative spin (laughs) on this idea of our obsession with photographing our food because he says that it's affecting that vertical experience of that moment that moment because now it's about actually locating the food in terms of kind of what will have been i think is what he Mm -hmm. how he describes it it's it's sort of like we want to locate this somewhere at some point and Somebody needs to witness this. Another thing he talks about is like, we do this because it's sort of for a witness, but the person with us is actually not enough of a witness. It's really some kind of witness that could be us, could be somebody else. It may never even be looked at, this photograph. That is altering the idea that the meal is really about, as he calls it, conviviality. Mm-hmm. Right? That's really about that, sort of that sharing and that you, if I'm with you, you're not enough of a witness. I really need to make making this photograph for some other witness. Which wow. is sort of on this horizontal axis. Yeah. And it's almost dismissive of the person that you're
0: with and, yeah, the, and the present enough. moment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's really more focused on sort of me in this moment. It's sort of more of a narcissistic thing, right? Because it's like, it's about me and somebody needing to witness me as opposed to me sharing this moment with you. So. Yeah decided to end the class, our final, instead of 14 students, one after the other presenting their projects, by the time you get to the 14th, I feel sorry for that person because everybody's probably pretty tired, you know? Yeah. So instead I've decided I'm, because my mother's Brazilian, I was born in Brazil. So I have this in my own family, this tradition of Brazilian cooking. So I've invited all my students actually to come to my home for a feijoada, which is the traditional Brazilian dish it's a black bean stew why did you think it would be a good idea to have students over we've created a community in the class and it's a kind of a way of celebrating I think that community and doing something actually being on the vertical axis (laughs) of the pleasure of eating as opposed to theories and history and the horizontal axis of time so you're
0: not planning on presenting your
1: dish In a a
0: way that they can photograph? Yeah.
1: I'm sure because that's so much part of the experience, I'm sure that's going to happen too. That was Yara
0: Kluver talking about her food photography course. Check out photos and links on our website, eartheats.org. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services more at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rash Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the Expected. More at 812-336-6838. By day, Samantha Adey Coti is a contracts lawyer. But in her downtime, she develops southern spins on the Ghanaian foods she grew up with. Producer Josephine McRobbie recently joined Samantha in her kitchen in Durham, North Carolina. Here's Samantha singing the praises
4: of her hometown. So Houston is my favorite city. I love Houston. Um, And I think it is because of the diversity within the city. So we're Ghanaian, my neighbors next to me were Persian. Across the street were Syrians, next to them was Japanese people. And then right next to us on the left side were Honduran people. I took for granted that everybody did not grow up like this. I thought it was just like normal until I went to college. Um, But growing up in Houston, I think, um, kind of helped fuel my love of food. My name is Samantha Ade Cote. Um, I am first-generation American Ghanaian. My parents are Ghanaian immigrants. Uh, Both of them are from Ghana, and um, they immigrated
5: here in the 80s. Growing up, Samantha had ample time in Ghana with her grandparents, but her formative years were spent in Houston. I remember every Friday, my mom would
4: pick me up from school and we would go to Fiesta, which is um, this amazing grocery store in Houston um, that a lot of immigrants go to because there's like a lot of international um, uh, merchandise. And so we would go there on Fridays and she like taught me how to pick ripe tomatoes and fruit and, and we would get the stuff that she needed to cook for the week. And then Saturday morning, we would wake up and we would cook basically all day.
5: Her favorite Ghanaian dishes are the simple ones.
4: I like um, red red, which is fried plantain. Um, it's generally fried, or traditionally, I should say. Now that people are more health conscious, it's fried in like regular oil, regular oil. Um, but it is traditionally fried in palm oil, so that's why the, the red. And then beans are accompanied with the like black eyed peas, um, like stewed down with um, salted fish, which we call kobe and, um, like onions, tomatoes, ginger, garlic, like all stewed in palm oil. And so they're red, red. Samantha attended Spelman
5: college in Atlanta.
4: I made it a point, like I was always cooking, um, because I'm super, super picky and I hated the food, um, that they had on campus. And so when I finally moved out, I think it was my junior year i was cooking like all of the time and also i was a broke college student like i didn't have a car um the first two years and i i couldn't really i don't think afford to like try the diversity of food but i definitely ate a bunch of southern food when i was there and i loved it
5: She moved to Durham, North Carolina in 2008 to attend law school.
4: I would cook a lot, invite people over, and um, law school can be a very kind of isolating experience because you're studying so much. And so I think that the way for me to kind of keep and foster community was through food.
5: She then spent a few years living in D.C. practicing law, but also growing interested in cooking as more than a hobby.
4: I lived with like a family friend who I call a cousin and she's Ghanaian and her mother was living with her at the time and her mother um, was like born and raised in Ghana. She was born in Houston, just like me. And so her mom was always cooking. And so I lived with them and her mom was a really, really, really good cook. And I realized like, wow, I really, really miss Ghanaian food. And it was then um, somehow my brain made the connection that like, hey, Ghanaian food or Southern food rather, I should say, um, has a lot of Ghanaian influence, West African influence, but specifically I could see like Ghanaian influence. And, and so there's an overlap here. And if there is a way that I can kind of like fuse these two these two cuisines together and make people more open to trying African food because they can see like, hey, it's, it's pretty similar to stuff that I eat, maybe just like seasoned and prepared a little bit differently,
5: then um, that's what I'll do. Samantha moved back to Durham in 2014 and works in contract law. She's also started Cornbread and Cantemarie, a fusion cuisine company offering cooking classes and event catering. She was bolstered by the encouragement of the family who run a local Kenyan and Pan-African restaurant called the Palace International.
4: They are big proponents of um, highlighting African culture and kind of like bridging the gap between Um, African-American culture, Caribbean culture, like the diaspora at large in in Africa. And so they kind of pushed me like, hey, your food is really good. Like, let's do some events. Let's do some some pop-ups or, you know, make a dessert for the palace.
5: In 2018, Samantha presented a five-course dinner at the palace that highlighted Ghanaian cuisine. She made the ubiquitous Ghana salad that has salad greens and cucumber, but also includes ingredients that were common during British colonization in West Africa.
4: Like the dressing is Heinz salad cream, which is very British. Um, baked beans, Heinz baked beans, not just like Bush's baked beans or whatever, like American baked beans people generally eat, and um, uh, boiled eggs, and some people do salmon, some people do tuna, but uh, or sardines. If you go to a party in Ghana, you're gonna have Ghana salad. Like, it's, it's there. And so there is um, like a street food in Ghana called Kosia ne meko, which is basically um, egg, which is kosya and meko, it's pepper. And so to kind of fuse the two together...
5: We're in Samantha's kitchen, where she's preparing her take on this dish. It traditionally consists of a boiled egg cut in half with the mako pepper sauce added to the middle. It becomes a kind of tiny sandwich, easy to eat on the go. In Samantha's southern play on the dish, the egg is fried, topped with the mako pepper sauce, and served on your choice of biscuit.
4: So I like um, cream biscuits. Okay. Yeah, so um, biscuits that, they're super simple to make. It's just like two ingredients. I like add salt and sugar and like butter and stuff, but you know, generally it's just, Self-rising flour and um, uh, and heavy cream. Okay. And so you don't have to worry about like the butter layers with the buttermilk,
5: you know. Uh, she tops this batch of biscuits with a butter, honey, and nutmeg glaze. Uh-huh.
4: And um, the nutmeg is because Ghanaians love to put nutmeg in everything. It is not grown in in Ghana, however, we, we just love nutmeg. It goes mm-hmm. in lots of things, savory and sweet alike. So that's the biscuit situation.
5: Samantha chops up a mix of shallots and garlic, as well as a special ingredient.
4: And then I have um, these little peppers. It's called bakboshito, and you can only find it in Ghana. And then I added one habanero. We'll see if if I use that. And then tomatoes, and then tomatoes and onion, just to kind of garnish on top.
5: Habanero or scotch bonnet peppers are a good substitution if you don't have access to peppers from Ghana.
4: So this thing is an asanka. And so it's kind of like a gigantic mortar and pestle, and so we kind of just like grind all the ingredients together into like a paste.
5: Samantha recommends starting with the spicy ingredients and then using salt and tomato to tone down the heat to taste.
4: start off with the onion or yeah the onion and pepper first just because those are like harder in the garlic um, to grind up and the tomatoes are soft so and so then it's just like a rocking back and forth motion chunky, but um, we're getting close. I'm going to do a little bit more grinding, and then I'm going to add some salt, and then we'll add the tomatoes in at the end.
5: She adds about a teaspoon of kosher salt and continues to grind.
4: And they're just regular, like, Roma tomatoes. It doesn't really matter what kind you use. Um, I just go for whatever's ripest. this egg. That'll be quick. So the egg is gonna be super simple. It's just a fried egg. Okay, <laughs> with salt and pepper. Um, a little black pepper. That's
5: it. Put the egg, pepper, and biscuit together and you have a simple southern comfort food dish with some subtle knots to Canadian flavors.
4: I don't want people to just like come and eat Ghanaian food because it's not, um, as mainstream yet as like Mexican food or Indian food. And so I think it's really important for people to have like cultural context and background. Like for example, um, I think it depends on like the household, but Saturday or Sunday, um, breakfast in Ghana, people eat wache, which is like rice and beans. Um, and uh it also has like spaghetti and pepper and stew and an egg like it's a whole thing but the point is that it's very heavy and it's heavy because um you know uh traditionally Ghana or historically rather Ghana was it it was an agrarian society and based on agriculture and so people are going out and working um outside and using their hands and are probably not eating lunch and so a lot of our food is really heavy but it's not just because we want to eat like super heavy food but there was kind of like a utilitarian purpose behind it and so i think that um knowing that so that people kind of have a frame of reference for why we're eating a certain way or why something is prepared in a certain way um is is really powerful and and, and feels important.
5: Samantha and a friend have started an African women chefs collective, with plans to put on regular cultural and culinary events.
4: The first event will be a um, a Year of Return uh, dinner, like a five course dinner. Which the Year of Return is an initiative that Ghana had um, this past year, two thousand nineteen, to commemorate four hundred years, like sixteen nineteen, since the first slaves left. Um, left West Africa and so we're having a year of return dinner that is Ghanaian based but there are dishes that are easily identifiable to southern dishes and we will have like some storytelling elements with um, that like alongside so that people can kind of, you know, like I mentioned, really connect with the, the whole experience. So we both have committed to focusing on the collective because our mission is just, you know, highlight African food and, and put it on the map and, and make it mainstream.
0: That was Samantha Ade Coti. talking with producer Josephine McRobbie. Find the recipe for Ghanian meko at eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening.
2: The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.
0: Special thanks this week to Samantha Cote, Yara Kluver, Aaron Bowie, and everyone in the food photography course at the Collins Living Learning Center. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812. 812- three, three, six, six, eight, three, eight. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with personal financial services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio. Creek Studio.